Hi, Derek. Welcome to the Flowgrade Show. I'm really excited to have you. Thanks, Max. Me too. And uh, my first question for you would be, because now we, we meet digitally for the first time, but what if we would have run into each other in a cafe in Munich, which I know you considered to at some point, based on your blog, moving to, yeah. and we would have started talking and I would have come up with the question, so what do you do in life? What would your <laughs> response have been? Well, it's, it's funny. It depends if it was you and I wanted to talk to you, I would probably call myself an author now, but that's a pretty new thing for me. On the other hand, if you were a stranger, when somebody says, what do you do? I usually figure like, man, I have enough social interactions in life. Like I'm a, I'm a pretty social guy. And so if a stranger asks me, what do you do? I, I always feel like I don't want to get into it. So I just tell them I'm a programmer. And I've found that it's the most wonderful answer because if you say I'm a programmer, people tend to go, oh, they have nothing more to say about that. Whereas in the years when I used to be a musician, I was a full-time musician for like 15 years. And if you say I'm a musician, then people go, oh my God, what kind of music do you do? Where can I hear your music? Are you on the radio? And it's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> and I just started saying I'm a programmer. And it was just a wonderful way to shut people up. Beautiful. Okay. I would have assumed that at first, before asking you that, I would have gotten a sign from you that you're interested in talking to me. I hope <laughs> I would have done it. <laughs> But you just mentioned you're really a, a jack of many trades and uh, I've been following you now for a while and it's amazing about just how many interests you have and how much curiosity for the world. And recently I came across, yeah, Jump in. Well, it tends to go in phases. I, I, I don't think I'm actually a jack of many trades. I, I spent 15 years of my life just doing music, massively, singly obsessed with making music. And then I accidentally started CD Baby. And as soon as I started CD Baby, my attention just shifted. I think it was like, like somebody that goes from being a basketball player to being a basketball coach. It's like, you've had your time in the spotlight. You've had your time on the, co on the court. Now it's your time to coach others. And my, my focus in life just shifted completely. As soon as I started my company, I instantly poured all of my attention into helping musicians and never again wrote another song or ever made music again. So I tend to just get very single focused, but I guess we're That's what we're going to talk about, Flo. That's why I'm here. Oh, definitely. And by the way, based on what you just said now, was there a point, though, where you realized, okay, my music career is now over and I'm going a different direction? Um, hmm. Imagine you're walking by a lake for a long time and then you come up to a great mountain in nature and you say, oh, I'm going to climb that mountain. You'd probably be halfway up the mountain before you'd go, huh, I guess I'm not next to that lake anymore. <laughs> so it's like, I, uh, it wasn't a conscious decision. Like I am going to no longer make music, just like you wouldn't decide. I'm not going to walk by that lake anymore. Instead, you're just focused on something more exciting. And there we are actually right in the middle already with our first topic that I wanted to 
inquire about, which is how to deal with time. And I recently came across a quote, actually, that made me think of you. Um, it was by Ram Das, the late and great thinker Ram Das, who once said, if you want to live high, you have to live outside of time. And all of a sudden, Derek Sivers popped into my head <laughs> based on <laughs> what I've read from you and how you make decisions on like moving to different places. For example, mm -hmm. by just feeling uncomfortable, it seems like that you all of a sudden move, not based on any time frame. Yeah. And especially now, I think that a lot of people right now in this crazy world and the situation are thrown into totally different lives and time becomes a new concept for many of them. And as someone who plays around with time a little differently, my first question would be, what role does time play when you go about your day, when you work, when you make mm -hmm. plans? I think it's kind of moot. Um, we'll talk about it from two different aspects. Okay, so for one, I mean, work. I don't work with a schedule or deadlines or really any structure at all. Uh, instead, I really just throw myself to completely into whatever project is the most important to me next. Like, and then I do only that. So whether that project takes me three days or three months or three years to finish, I just do that one single thing until it's done. Um, I'll give a, a concrete example. So until Christmas this past year, we're talking at the end of March, uh, until Christmas, I was doing nothing but writing my next book every single day, like 15 hours a day. But then at Christmas time, my assistant told me that she was really stuck kind of waiting for some technology things that we needed on our backend system that she couldn't really work without. So I went, ah, all right, it's clear that right now, this is now more important than me finishing the book. She's unable to work. So from Christmas until just three weeks ago, I did nothing but programming. I just paused my book and I threw myself into programming. So now every morning, I mean, starting at Christmas, every morning I would just wake up and do nothing but programming all day long until I fall asleep and I do that again. And then three weeks ago, when the COVID thing was really starting to affect people's lives and everything was getting shut down and businesses were closing and firing everybody, I did something I've never done before. I sent an email to my entire mailing list of tens of thousands of people. And I just sent three sentences. I said, how are you? Are you okay? Yes, I'm really asking. And something like 7,000 people replied. Wow. And I went, oh God. And now I, so for the last three weeks until two days ago, I did nothing 15 hours a day but answer about 600 emails a day for 15 days until I was done. Um, and so that's how, that's the role time plays in my life. Is it's, I don't look at clocks. I don't have a schedule. I don't have a structure to my day. I tend to just throw myself into one thing at a time. And now that I've answered all those emails, I'm going to go back to finishing my book as I was doing before Christmas. So um, that said... I don't think this is the best way to be. Like, ideally, I wish that I would stop for two hours a day to practice my Portuguese or maybe work on my book for four hours every morning first 
and then throw myself into answering emails or programming. But I just, I have this thing in me that I, I don't like it when things are incomplete. And when I'm in the mode, in the flow, as you know, we're going to talk about flow, I just get so into this one thing that everything else I ever did in the past is just, it's gone. I'm not thinking of it. Okay, so I said we were going to talk about two aspects of this. The second one is parenting. So having a baby, I had a kid, uh, well, he's eight now, so eight years ago. Um, It was really interesting being with him when he was born and I was spending all my time with him, noticing that this whole concept of clocks is such a recent kind of artificial invention, right? And this whole idea of like, it's one o'clock, you should go to bed. It's seven o'clock, it's time to go to sleep. It's, it's so silly when you look at it through the lens of nature and kids' natural uh, flow of you know being tired or being enthusiastic or whatever. So yeah, ever since he was born, he and I, whenever I'm with him, all devices are off, all clocks are moot. We just hang out and go by whatever time scale he's feeling, you know? Um, so I think that was a good inspiration for my own life too. I realized, yeah, clocks really are only when you need to coordinate with other people. That's exactly the anxiety that I get usually when I leave my calendar. And as you know, being German, I, th I think that Germany is a quite calendar conscious country in general. And people are a bit afraid of letting go of the linear time. Mm -hmm. And I'm also someone who's, who's losing track of time often. And uh, well, my colleagues, and my friends, they, I'm known for that. Uh, and that's why you recently recorded an episode that I really resonated with which is called Time is Personal. It was right before New Year's where you said you rather focus on events than special dates, let's say, mm -hmm. or uh, times. And a follow-up question now on what you already said is how do you deal with the expectations that the outside world has of you in terms of your calendar? Like how do you get out of your calendar and uh, – not feel anxious about it. Hmm. Well, number one would be trying to avoid the situation where, where you're expected to do something on a certain calendar date. You know, uh, if you can adjust your life in a way that you say, well, this will be ready when it's ready. <laughs> and people just learn maybe through reputation and reliability that you will get it done at a, in a good amount of time. But, but no, it's not going to be by one o'clock on Thursday. It'll be when it's done. Um, so I guess I'm lucky that nobody in the world, except maybe tax payments, <laughs> are expecting anything by a certain particular date from me. I try not to make those promises. So like right now, there are only two things that I really ever put into my calendar. Uh, for the last 10 years, and that's flights and interviews. <laughs> Those are the only <laughs> two things where I have to be somewhere at some pre-coordinated time. And the last six years, I was living in New Zealand, 
raising a kid and um, I wasn't flying anywhere and I did no interviews for five years. So literally for the last five years, I'd say, um, I didn't even keep a calendar. Like there wasn't, there was no, you know, even the app on my phone just had absolutely no entries in it. I never looked at it. Um, but when I was in college um, in Boston, same as you. I was yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, in college you have, you know, you have a class at 9 a.m., you have a class at 1 p.m., you have a class at 4 p.m. So I would keep one of those, I think they call it like an executive planner, you know, where it's like an actual paper book with every hour of every day um, written with a little line entry. And I would, I would schedule every hour of every day. And I loved it. You know, if I had one hour in between classes, I'd say, okay, that's an hour I'm going to work on my jazz piano scales. And I had two hours here and I'd say, I'm going to go running for one hour. I'm going to shower and then I'm going to practice my arpeggios for an hour or whatever. It was music school. Um, so I actually really liked living that way. And I got so much done and made so much progress in my life that I've considered doing that again. But I just haven't because... I'm always so into what I'm doing right now that I just really enjoy doing it to completion as we talked about. By the way, it was not only a music school, it was Berkeley School of Music, which is in, in my eyes, one of the best music schools uh, in the world. I love overrated. going by there. <laughs> it's, it, uh, it's, it's overrated. It has a, uh, a big reputation inside. Eh, it's all right. <laughs> but at least it's beautifully located. I, I enjoyed oh, yeah. walking by there and there were usually some musicians practicing outside. Yeah. I, I lived yeah. on Commonwealth Avenue. Yep. So then I, that was my path. And uh, I always enjoyed That's true. it. I, I kind of miss that, that thing of like to walk by a building and see a whole bunch of musicians like hanging out on the street with a guitar, even like a saxophone or playing. And yeah, that, I, that's pretty cool. I miss that. Now, uh, you as a musician, you also, you deal a lot with, with rhythm and the music, you know, rhythm is, is an important aspect of music. And for me personally, it's also in life. Like I'm actually someone, if I am not in a rhythm, I can't build up momentum. Yes. And now with your lifestyle, I imagine it to be quite hard. You pointed to your uh, eight-year-old that uh, your kid is sort of, uh, well, I think giver of rhythm in a way to you when he mm -hmm. gets tired mm -hmm. or wakes up in the morning. But mm -hmm. do you have any routines or anything that sort of establishes a rhythm that you feel comfortable and then that kind of helps you build momentum? No, I think, I don't know why off the top of my head right now, rhythm and momentum feel, um, to be almost in conflict, that rhythm implies some kind of change. Well, I don't know. Like the, it's, it's almost like my, the way that I'm describing that I work is, is more like a drone than a rhythm, <laughs> you know, that I just do one thing. I have no concept of time. Uh, so, you know, my advice is to, is to try to do things to completion because then you don't lose a momentum in the first place. I think what's really hard is when you've switched your attention to something else and then you come back to something, there's always this, this effort to get back into it. You know, so um, 
for example, when I get into programming, um, if I look at programming code I wrote even a few months ago, I look at it and I have no idea what it's doing. Like, did I write that? What is that? What the fuck is that about? <laughs> and then, uh, and it takes me almost a full day or two to go, oh, right. Okay. Okay. I haven't looked at this in a few months. Now I remember what that's doing. Okay. That's why that, okay. That's why that's that way. So I end up having to write documentation for my future self to tell my future self why this is, you know, what this code is doing and why it's like, I'm writing it to a stranger, but that stranger is my future self. So, um, same with writing my book, of course. I don't know if you had that experience writing your book that when you're in it, you're, you can, the flow is going, you can keep going. But if you do something else for a while, you come back to it. It's really hard to put yourself back into that mindset you were in a paragraph ago. That's exactly what I feel when I'm in a flow state, when what you yeah. just described that you, you've, kind of forget what you've been working on. It can happen to me as well when I'm writing that I wake up like three in the morning all of a sudden from working in a way. It, it feels like a waking up experience. And all of a sudden it's dark outside. I have no idea what time it is. Uh, I'm just discombobulated in a way all of a sudden that uh, what have I been doing for the last six, seven hours? And I was in a complete flow state. And for me, right. this is kind of what you just described as, as being in, in momentum. And now... You know which, on that point, though, it's because I did jet lag for many years. I used to go back and forth between Singapore and, and US or Singapore and America or whatever. I was dealing with jet lag a lot. And, after, and I just decided not to fight it that if suddenly I was falling asleep at five in the afternoon and waking up at wide awake at two in the morning, I'm like, all right, I'm going to just roll. I'm not going to beat myself up for it. It's like, well, this is where my energy is right now. So I'd get up at 2 a.m. and I'd start working. Uh, and, you know, it would eventually fall into place. But I think there's a lesson in that, even for those of us that aren't jet lagged, that you just go with your natural energy and if there are times that it's, you know, three in the afternoon and you're tired and you don't want to work, well, then that's a good time to, to just lay down on the couch and do nothing for half an hour instead of laying down on the couch and doing nothing when your friend wants to watch TV you know, or something like that. You could say, nope, sorry, I'm not going to be watching that show with you. I'm totally into what I'm doing. Um, yeah, just honoring your natural uh, energy. It seems to me, though, that you need to be quite in tune with your emo emotions and also what you kind of want to do right now. And I think a lot of people are actually struggling with that, not knowing what they should be doing at the moment, what they actually want to do. do you well, isn't that related to what it means to be in flow? But to me, okay, when I read that book, uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi wrote the book about flow. Um, I loved when he defined it as, um, I, I can't remember the complete definition, but the point about knowing the next step and knowing what needs to be done next, um, that to me is the most crucial thing for me and the thing that I wrestle with the most, that if I know what needs to be done next and it's within my abilities, then 
then I stay in flow. It's the, the time when I lose it, when I get stuck is when I don't know the next step. And I, if, when you mention people in their lives, they don't know, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Well, that's, that's by definition, then the, the enemy of the flow state is not knowing what's next. So first you have to figure out some way to figure out what's next, and then you can throw yourself into it. Now, that's what I tell people a lot when something feels good and they can't really rationally explain it yet, but intuitively it feels good and it somehow gives you some sort of reward like in terms of pleasure or just having that feeling, hey, I need to keep going, then keep doing it. Keep doing more of it. <laughs> and then yeah. usually get deeper and deeper into a flow state. That sometimes happens to me when I write on my book and I have an idea and I start writing a different chapter than what I intended to write in the first place. And I'm losing myself in this new concept. And I'm just writing. And at the end, it, it somehow I fit it in. At first, I couldn't explain that rationally but it, it happened like inside of me. Do you know that experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, ideally when you're writing, it's best when it's discovery, isn't it? That it's, you don't want to just sit down and just spit out stuff you already know. That's kind of a chore. Mm. But when you sit down to write and you're discovering new things as you're writing, that's the exciting thing. I love the fact that, you know, what, Articles and blog posts are kind of essays. And I loved when I found out that the original meaning of the word essay, it's from the French uh, SAA, which means to, to try or to attempt. So uh, Michel Montaigne kind of, uh, I guess, started uh, this idea of writing as essays, uh, meaning I'm going to try, I'm going to try to figure out what I think about something. So it's kind of the, the idea of writing as exploration. Um, yeah. By the way, you recently had a project of writing, I think it ended up to be 33 articles day by day, <laughs> every day. And I, I read your summary where you mentioned that it became sort of a chore that just triggered me right now. And now looking back, was it, even though I actually thought that there were some really valuable articles in there that I really enjoyed and that gave me some great ideas uh, for my book, actually. And uh, I think, I'm not sure if it was part of that sequence, but it was the one uh, where you recommended not to quote people. Yeah. And I really took that to heart. And I actually went cool. back in my book and I rephrased some of the ideas that I got from other people where exactly cool. stated it the way you said, you know, this person stated dot, dot. Yep. And then uh, a quote and then kind of explain what it means. And, and now I try to really incorporate it into my own thinking and what it triggered into me and maybe even adapt the idea a little bit so it fit my point of view. So cool. thank you for that. <laughs> so but i mentioned this this project because it seems to me that this was actually something that that maybe got you out of balance a little bit and then i think flow is something when when you get out of balance and you can't get back in i find it highly interesting what people what go-to methods they have to get back into a productive writing flow yeah. so what is that for you um Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed of that. Um, when I started out writing an article a day, I didn't 
I didn't think it was going to only be for 30 days. I really thought optimistically, I'm going to just do this from now on. I'm going to make this my top priority. This is my job. I'm going to write a new interesting article every day. Um, and yeah, after 30 days, I just found that I wasn't, um, I wasn't able to get much else done. I don't write quickly. I write very slowly. Um, so I was spending like five hours a day on my article instead of all, and I've described to you the way that I like to work, right? <laughs> I love to just do one thing at a time. And suddenly it was like every single day was split into parts. There was this first three to five hours of the day where I was trying to write my article that I've promised the world I would do. But then I also found that from the audience point of view, um, it used to be that when I would post an article on my site, it was kind of a more uh, rare event. And so I'd post an article and everybody would read it and it would get 350 comments or whatever. And then with the new articles, once I was posting every single day, some of them were getting like three or four comments. I was like, wow, like I'm trying harder than ever and people are reading less than ever because I think I'm just writing too much. So I don't know, I'll find my balance. Um, but you asked about like, how, how do I get back into flow? Um, I think it's that, that thing I just said about finding the next step. That whenever I find that I'm not in flow, I have to ask myself, what is the next step? So I'll actually get kind of meta. I'll go into my journal and I'll write, okay, I'll start asking myself questions. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? What's the ultimate outcome? Where am I at in the process? What's, what are the big steps? Okay, which big step am I on now? What are the little steps? What, are the next, what is the next little step? And what is the next little step after that? Is it small enough for me to handle or am I stuck because it's too big? Do I need to break it down smaller? So I just get meta and ask myself these questions. And usually that helps me figure out, okay, right. I now remember what I'm doing. Now I know the next step. By the way, that brings me to another idea that you put into my head, which I haven't started yet, but it is the idea to write your own autobiography and starting with the last chapter. And how did you come up with that idea? And have you already written your autobiography? It's not done. I mean, actually, there's very little of it it's done. Because um, I, I, I'm still kind of like three quarters of the way done with my next book called How to Live. Um, so I just want to finish that first. But the idea with the autobiography is how cool would it be to keep writing it your whole life And when I say you're always writing the last chapter, I mean, the last chapter is always now. You don't number them in advance. You just say, okay, whatever, whatever, I'm, whatever phase in my life I'm in now, this is the part that I'll be writing. And you have to go back and fill in the backstory um, at some point. So you kind of write backwards. You could start with now and fill in the back. Or if you have plenty of time, hurry up and write from the beginning. But then... The idea is you don't stop at the age of 40 or 50 or 60. You just keep going and keep adding to it so that when you die, uh, the book's ready to go. Even if you were mid-story, uh, you could be, you know, mid-sentence. And if you died the next day, well, that was the end of the book. And uh, you leave instructions on 
how to release the book. And I think maybe people are probably most interested in your life uh, the week that you die. <laughs> Isn't that probably when when uh, biographies and autobiographies of people uh, hit their highest sales point? So how cool to have the book uh, always in a state of constant completion and uh, could just be released the day after you die. It's, it's a very intriguing idea. And actually, I took a, a different approach this time with my second book at the moment, where I started writing the, the last chapter first cool. to see what I wanted readers to feel like when they have read the whole book and then my last statement about what they've just experienced. Nice. That actually really helped me get motivated to start writing. Cool. It's a great approach. I've never heard that. And now we are already, you just mentioned your newest book project, which I'm really excited about, which is called How to Live. And uh, I think it's a really, really interesting concept. I know you've already worked many ideas into uh, your articles and your blog, but as far as I understand, it's 40 different perspectives on how to live. And maybe you can tell me the story of how you came up with that project at first and maybe share a little bit about what we can expect as, as readers, because I'm really excited for it to come out, especially in these times. <laughs> um, it was inspired by a book called Sum, S-U-M, by David Eagleman. Um, which is, uh, it's a fiction kind of thinky dreamy book. It's very similar, uh, very similar to, um, is it called Einstein? Einstein's Dreams. I, I think he actually got the format from the book called Einstein's Dreams. But the idea is every single chapter is just a little two or three page long short story uh, uh, about what happens when you die but each one is deliberately conflicting with the previous one. So it'll be like chapter three, uh, when you die, you're surrounded by a bunch of little creatures saying, what is answer? What is answer? Uh, and you figure out that what you knew as your life was really an artificial intelligence program. You are an artificial intelligence program. And now these creatures are around you. You know, your program has finished running. They want to know what is the meaning of life? What is answer? You try to explain, but no matter what you say, they just keep furrowing their brow and saying, what is answer? And you realize that if we were to write an artificial intelligence program that was smarter than us, we would be too dumb to understand what it's trying to tell us. That would just be one story. But then it's like, chapter six, when you die, you're, um, you're meted, greeted by somebody that tells you that in your last life, you chose to be a man, but now it's uh, your time to pick whatever creature on earth you want to be again. So you remember the day that you uh, admired the simple life of a horse grazing in the grass. And you said, I want to be a horse. And as soon as you say that, your body starts to turn into a horse, your arms get longer, your hands turn into hooves and your shoulders, your neck lengthens. But then you start to feel your brain turning into a horse's brain. and you realize you're starting to forget what man is, that a horse doesn't really understand what man is. And you realize that what you liked about the simple life of a horse was the comparison to your complicated life as a man. And so you try to say, wait, but all that comes out is, 
And <laughs> at the last minute before your brain completely becomes a horse's brain, you think, I wonder what kind of complex, beautiful creature I might have been that chose the simple life of a man. And so these beautiful little short stories that I just, I loved the format where it's like, oh, here's what happens when you die. No, 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 no. Here's what happens when you die. No, 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 no. Here's what happens when you die. No, 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 no. Here's what a gorgeous, brilliant, creative format to write a book in. 40 conflicting answers to the same question. What happens when you die? So I read that book. I loved that book. I read it again. And one day while I was driving, I went, oh my God, I want to write a book called How to Live. And every chapter will deliberately conflict with the previous one. It'll be 40 answers to one question, how to live. And each one disagreeing with the previous one. So, um, yeah, so that's what it is. I don't know if it's going to be 40. It'll probably be more like 25 answers. But what's so exciting about it to me and what I've kind of discovered while writing it is that there are many, many, many completely valid and basically true approaches to life. And they, del- and they conflict with each other. So you could say, rightly, that the way to live is to delay gratification, that you should live for the future. Your present self should be in service of your future self, that you should be always working towards making a brighter future, both for yourself, and then if you continue that idea, you know, for your kids, for your grandkids, for the world, you should defer all gratification in order to make the world a better place. Look at the the magic of compounding interest and use that as your guiding uh, law of physics. And you can elaborate on that infinitely. And then you can also say, hmm? I said, what a beautiful idea. And I really, I'm even more excited now well, so, so, so that's just like, that's one idea. You could say, okay, that's how to live, defer gratification. But then a minute later, you could say, wait, here's how to live. Fill your senses. Like, oh my God, we're only on earth for a short time. See everything, hear everything, taste everything. Uh, do it all, go everywhere. And if you really believe that this is the correct way to live, then you're going to need a system because left to your own devices, you'll kind of randomly walk in the same areas and listen to the same things. So no, if you really believe that the meaning of life is to fill your senses uh, and see it all and taste it all, well, then you need to be systematic about it. You need to never listen to the same thing twice. You need to never go to the same place twice, uh, never eat the same thing twice. And if you're going to do that, well, then you might as well have one of these guidebooks that tells you, you know, a thousand and one places you must see before you die and systematically go to all those places and find the best food in the world, the best restaurants and systematically go through them and uh, listen to the best music ever made, but never more than once because there's always something more to listen to. And this would be a wonderful way to approach life. Um, Yeah. And it keeps going and it keeps going. There are, and each one of these is conflicts with the other, but 
that's the fun thing about writing it is as I'm writing it, every single chapter I'm writing on, I get so into that philosophy that I think, yeah, oh my God, this is the way to live. And then I finish that chapter and it's on to the next chapter, which is completely in conflict with the previous one. It's a blast. Is there Sorry, any... th thanks for allowing the monologue. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I would, you know what? I think you are someone that you can, I could listen to for hours just monologuing. <laughs> I'm serious. I know your podcast episodes are really short, which I also enjoy, uh, but you have a very beautiful way of expressing yourself. And it really, I think just the way you, you, you speak and you describe things is uh, quite inspirational in itself. So thank you. Another compliment from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for indulging me. I always feel, I always feel guilty when I go on like a long monologue rant like that. So thank you. I have another question just regarding that. Is there one philosophy that you've came across that now in this current situation with COVID-19 made you change your perspective on life or maybe the other way around is there the situation right now that inspired one of the philosophies you're writing no um to me the different approaches to life all exist in my head at the same time um so i don't think that something would you know something would happen in the world to make me say this is now the right one because I think I disagree with the idea of the right approach to life. But stoicism is uh, a little overhyped right now, but at its core, it's about preparing yourself for a more difficult future. So I think that um, living with the unknown where you don't know what the future holds, it's interesting to assume the worst, to uh, expect things to get worse, or maybe if you were expecting things to get worse this whole time and then now they just did, then it's no big surprise to you. Um, it's not devastating. Um, you know, even coming to terms with your own death, um, this idea of asking yourself, well, what's the, what's the worst that can happen? So being deliberately pessimistic is to, to not look on the bright side, but to go darker and deeper and ask yourself, well, what is the worst possible thing that could happen? Or let me name 20 terrible things that could happen and to actually make your peace with those things and come to terms with the fact that the worst that could happen is not that bad. And in fact, you're, it's fine. And if you're cool with that, well then anything that happens is okay. So yeah, uh, two weeks ago, especially when I, and I guess it's been three weeks ago now, when I originally sent that email out to my whole mailing list and all of these emails from people came pouring back with just thousands of people that were just devastated and things like, Oh my God, you know, my, my father just died and now my wife is coughing and can't stop. I think she may have it. And I was just fired and we can't pay next month's rent. And I'm here in a strange country where I don't have any friends and I can't afford to fly home and I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, I read so many emails like that, that it, it got to me. And I, uh, I found myself feeling like, uh, 
not a not a panic attack, but like a the bigger, slower sense of like, oh man, we're all fucked. <laughs> and I just kind of shut off the computer for a bit, walked in the forest for a bit. Birds are chirping in the trees. Uh, they're just fine. In fact, I'm just fine. And it was just kind of going through the scenarios like, well, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, I die. It's like, is that so bad? No, I've, I've already put my savings into a trust and I've taught my kid what I could and gave him a good life. Okay. Um, what else could happen? I, I lose everything I have and I fall deep into debt and whatever. Is that so bad? Eh. No. As long as I'm able to write and read, I'm happy. As long as I'm allowed to, you know, get out of the forest. Oh, okay. What if I lost my health so bad, but was still alive and could never go outside again? Is that so bad? I know. I'd be okay with that. It's not ideal, but I'm cool with that. So I just play through these awful worst case scenarios in my head and make my peace with it. And then, um, then I'm okay. Uh, so yeah, to me, that's the, the gist of the stoicism approach to life is to both strengthen yourself for a more difficult future and make peace with the worst outcomes. It reminds me very much of my younger brother, Johannes, who might be listening right now. And uh, because he always asked when we were children, my mom, so my grandmother lived up in the mountains in, the, in a house, very few houses around. And he would always ask, so what if grandma can't drive there anymore? And then my mom would say, she would walk. He said, well, what if she loses both her legs? <laughs> and then my mom would say, well, then she crawls. And what if she loses both her <laughs> arms? <laughs> and then she's like, then she would then we make die. her a cool Darth Vader suit. <laughs> <laughs> and he was only happy when he found out what the worst possible scenario was. And he thinks like that until today. So he has a very similar approach and always expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. Nice. <laughs> so now you mentioned all your... Sorry, now I just have this <laughs> image of your grandmother with no arms and legs shimmying up a mountain. <laughs> well, actually, she's still in shape. She's 95 years old now. And nice. so I think she still could walk up there. <laughs> at nice. the so... Yeah, Grandma, you never had this, these problems. <laughs> so I understand that you had some kind of bonus round questions for me that we could do kind of a lightning round of quick. Exactly. I was just jumping on the, for this. On, on, on the first one because this kind of relates to maybe what you want to also put into your readers' heads, minds, and it's, it's a question. I'm excited for your answer, which is if you could plant one thought into the minds of all the listeners right now, and maybe your readers uh, of, and all the people who send you emails, who would that th thought be? One thing? Generosity well, you can, is worth okay. Generosity is worth it. Very nice. We leave it at that. Next question. What are you afraid of? Voters continuing to elect harmful leaders. I also just leave it to that. 
With what person would you like to change shoes for one day? All of them. Uh, it's my life's fascination to understand what it's like to be someone else. So ideally, if I could trade places with everybody for a day, that would be my favorite answer. But if I had to pick one person, um, I would pick the person that is, I would pick a person that seems the most unlike me, say like a woman in uh, Guatemala or uh, Tibet or Tokyo um, that I think would be culturally as different from me as possible. I would love to be in her head for a day to see what it's like to be her, to, to hear and understand her belief systems and values, uh, see the world through her eyes and then see how people treat her so I can understand what that's like. That would be my dream. Thank you for sharing this. And we are to the last question, Derek, for today. What do you believe to be true, even though you cannot prove it? The future will be better than the past. What a beautiful way to end <laughs> this wonderful episode. Yay for lightning round. <laughs> Well, Derek, um, obviously, I'm going to link to all your, uh, to the website and especially mention to my readers and, and listeners once your book comes out. I'm not going to ask you when it's going to come out because I know it's going to come out. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Whenever it's ready. Yeah. Soon. <laughs> but I really, really enjoyed this episode. At, at this point, I just want to say thank you for your time. And also, personally, for me, uh, thank you for all the inspiration you've given me as an, a writer and as an entrepreneur and as a human being. Oh, so nice. thank you for your work. Uh, it really does inspire people. I'm proof of that. And yeah, I'm, I'm just very excited to, to present you to my community. So again, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So... To all the listeners, thank you very much for listening. If you like this episode, you can take a screenshot and share it uh, with us and send me an email. I'll forward it to Derek if he allows. But it's... Uh, yeah, actually, you know, since you mentioned it, you know that the main reason I do these interviews is I like meeting people that introduce themselves to me from across the world. It's one of my favorite things about my inbox is, you know... Um, guy that makes guitar pedals in Slovenia introduces himself and somebody who's a, you know, an investor in Lebanon emails me and says hello. And I think it's like my favorite thing about my inbox. So yes, people listening to this, please send me an email and introduce yourself. Say hello. <laughs>